third week of Advent, theme of joy. <clears throat> and as we are three-fourths of the way through this Advent season of preparation for the arrival of the Messiah, we consider this third week's theme of joy. Keeping with my commitment to finish out this year referencing the nature of God as revealed through the books of the First Testament, we're going to view love as it relates to God the Father while still anticipating the arrival of Christ the Son. And again, I may have confused us a little bit with this week's scripture member, which was from Lamentations. It may seem odd that I chose this particular passage or anything from the book of Lamentations during a season of joy. But consider all the Advent themes of hope, love, joy, and peace as I read this verse again from Lamentations 3.21 through 26, which Al read earlier. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. What a message of peace that is. And the story of Lamentations is a story of hope, love, peace, and yes, even joy, despite its namesake, which means to passionately express grief and sorrow, right? When we lament, we are, ugh. But just like the books of the prophets, which revealed a loving God and hope that was to come, the five poetic pieces that make up the Lamentations are part of that cycle we talked about just a few weeks ago. God had made covenant promises to his people, which include us, and delivered them and us from their oppressors. The people became complacent and aloof in their faith, and they broke their side of the covenant, right? We know they had made the golden calf. They had, they had done things they were commanded not to do, and there were consequences. Ecclesiastes 7.14 says, When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one as well as the other. God is in control of all. Ecclesiastes doesn't offer the answers that we sometimes hope it would. You know, we like to, to turn the Bible and say, God, why is this happening? Why, why would you allow this to happen? Why did you do this? And, and not all the answers are there. In fact, sometimes it's the book of Ecclesiastes and even the story of Job that we realize it is not for us to know. And there may be good reasons you know, we get in the way of God's timing. We get in the way of God's work. We get impatient because we want that blessing now. So sometimes what we hope for isn't what we get, all the answers. But the hope comes from the one who is answering our calls. But the consequences that were described in the book of Lamentations was, was the desolation of Judah after the fall of Jerusalem. God's people had once again found themselves exiled and oppressed. You know, how could a loving God who delivered them from Egypt and Pharaoh now let them fall from the promised land to the Babylonians? I chose this different approach to this week's message because there are people, likely many even in this room, despite how few we are in number this morning, or listening online, that, that are struggling to find joy in the season because they maybe feel oppressed or scared. Or, or maybe even let down by God. And I think it's safe to say it, it points in our lives we do feel like that. We are certainly all witness to the political and social divisiveness that's going on right now. 
We have all been affected by this global pandemic, even losing friends and neighbors from the small congregation um, to the ravages of the virus. Where is the joy in this? Where is God in this? You know, I enjoy our, our community and had several great conversations over the past few weeks, including last night. One of our neighbors shared with me about his son's confusion about a God who would be destructive, right? Vengeful, wrathful. And, and we, especially as Christians, say, well, the God of the Old Testament is the, the mean, destructive God. And then there's the, the New Testament, and that's a new God, a, a different God. And the question is asked, why should we even be concerned about the stories of the, of the First Testament? Because that's where the story of God is. And it sets the stage for the stuff that we come to know as Christians. But as he was sharing this, uh, his story about his son, and I could tell it was, he was including himself in the question, what he described was almost like a bit of anger towards God that, that would allow some of the things that he was experiencing personally and witnessing globally to happen. The first thing I said was, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to be angry. God has broad shoulders and thick skin, and, and we can shake our fists and say, God, why? And he may answer, he may not, but he's not going to have his feelings hurt because we're, we're speaking to him. It's okay to be troubled by that. It's okay to be troubled by uncertainty. It just reveals that there are some things that may need to be considered. Like, is there something more or different that I should be doing, Right? If I'm bothered by some of the things that are going on around me, is there something I could be doing about it in a good and healthy and godly way? Or maybe not. Maybe this is something I'm trying to understand that I'm not meant to understand. Maybe this is something I'm trying to control that I was never meant to, under, uh, to control. When we think about what we've been told and how we are to think, talk, and act as Christians, we can, we can get disappointed in ourselves or maybe even God because we aren't the model of goodness that we believe we should be, right? Life isn't as easy as it should be, right? We've given our life to Christ. We, we, we know the promise we're given, but life should be easy. There sh we shouldn't be suffering illness and affliction and, and stress and strains, and we get upset with ourselves because we feel that way. We almost feel guilty for that. And of course, we should aspire to be godly in nature and Christ-like in our actions and our attitudes. Of course, we should. We know that we are accountable for these things and we will someday be judged for them. But to, but to condemn yourself because you aren't feeling the joyous season, well, that, that's just being human. There are churches, several in this area, in fact, that have what they call a blue Christmas service. I had never heard of this before, but it was, it was interesting. It, it's usually a pretty short, and some do it as the beginning of Advent, and, and others do it symbolically on the shortest day of the year, which is coming up. Right? The service recognizes and accepts those who are not experiencing the joy of the season. Those who have lost a loved one, those who feel alone or isolated, those who are facing a personal crisis of any kind. To take a moment and recognize and validate these are very real feelings and to accept that it's okay to have them is healthy. It's healthy. And this is the story of Lamentations. So let me give you a little background. After many months of siege by the Babylonian armies, Jerusalem finally fell. And the final deportation of the people of Judah took place. And now they're being exiled out of this land that they um, had been promised. The time preceding Jerusalem's fall was one of, of internal strife and political intrigue. In fact, Jeremiah, the, the prophet, he, he counseled that they should surrender. 
And while the leaders of Jerusalem tried to encourage the Judahites to, to fight, you know, against the Babylonian onslaught, the role of Jeremiah in those final events was a tenuous one. His life was threatened and he suffered numerous imprisonments for sharing the message that, that he believed that God had given him. And the fall of Jerusalem meant more than a humiliating defeat in exile, right? While these would have been hard to bear, the, the theological emergency, right, the, the, the crisis of faith that they were experiencing was the most difficult thing that they were trying to comprehend. Why would this good God who had saved them, who delivered them, who had made promises, let them down? The fall of the city in which God chose to reveal himself would have signaled the end of God's promises, perhaps. And the New Testament, or the First Testament, clearly set forth a glorious future for Jerusalem, right? It, all these visions and these prophecies about the wonderfulness of, of, of how the nations were going to come together and, uh, under the one true God in this place. And it was to be the center of the messianic kingdom in the end times. This was revealed through prophets like Micah. So the destruction of the city would cause many to question the validity of God's word. Did I understand him right? Is he as good as we thought he was? The laments in this book are not only for the suffering that accompanied the fall of the city, right? The, the practical things like, you know, we've lost our land, but, but for the deep spiritual questions that came about as a result. But there's a really good theological teaching in here. Just like every book of the Bible has got a lesson to be learned. And the major purpose of the book of Lamentations was to give expression of this grief. Like I said, it's healthy and natural to, to get that out. This was Jeremiah writing it as, as he was viewing this catastrophe that had fallen both in, in faith and, you know, in, in structure. So by writing the book, he expressed the grief of all the Jews of his time and, and gave them this outlet that would give them a vent for their sorrow. The book doesn't just contain lamentations, which is, it's a poetic, there's five actual poems in this book, but it expresses a hope and comfort as well. That's, that's kind of counterintuitive. Thus, another purpose of the book was to lift the hearts of the people and point them to God, the source of all comfort. One of the great expressions of hope of the book is, is found in some of the verses that we read earlier. So I'm going to read this again from Lamentations 3. But I'm going to verse, begin at verse 21. And you'll hear the overlap of what we've already read, but I'm going to go on a little bit further. It says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. And it continues. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. The people who will truly struggle with a period of lamentation will be those who can't or won't learn the lessons of these tough times. 
here's what the Israelites learned during these periods. They learned that God is merciful. God's compassion was at work even when the Israelites were experiencing the affliction of the Babylonian conquerors. And although the people had been unfaithful, God's faithfulness was great. He used these tough times to bring the people back to him. God will always be faithful to his people. He will always be faithful to us. His merciful refining work is evident even in these tough times. And at those times, we must pray for forgiveness and then turn to him for deliverance. And he will time and time again respond. Because God is loving, God is good, and, and God's love is perfect. But like I told you before, God's love is conditional. There is an acceptance that must happen on our part. Now, to understand some of this, for me, I had to experience a couple things. One was my own periods of, of distress and, and lamentation. And the other one, much more positive, is, is the birth of my own children. And that helped me understand this relationship as, as on a more personal level. God as a father. God who loves as a father should. As you know, I've, I've become one of those guys that sits at a restaurant booth once a week with a bunch of other guys. And, and sometimes it started as a Bible study. Sometimes it's more fellowship. Sometimes we, we joke about our lives and complain about our jobs and, and brag about our spouses and, and things like that. And, and at times we even have to be accountable to each other. And I love that time. But it, but it, it was just a couple weeks ago. It was a Tuesday morning. I, I just left the restaurant. And I did what I typically do, which is I give my daughter a call. I have about a five-minute drive home to the, the home office on Tuesday. And, and um, I was giving her a call just to see how she was doing and Devin was doing and Olivia was doing. And what happened really surprised me. I, I looked at my phone. We had talked for 90 minutes, probably the chagrin of my employer, but I made it up later. <laughs> and I admit there were times in her late teen years that I was praying for 90 minutes in total over a year for us to talk like that. And I remember thinking, this is horrible. This is, I, I hate this broken relationship that we have right now, but someday I'm going to look back and, and enjoy and, and go, that was a horrible period of time, but, but thank God it's over. And, and I'm sitting there reveling. I called Sherry up because I had to be on the phone a little longer. They called Sherry up and I said, I just had the most awesome conversation with my daughter. About what? She said, about everything, about everything. It was a great start to the day. And I don't remember how it came about, but during that chat about Livy, I shared my own encounters and understanding as God the Father. And you know what? I think she got it. I think she got it. Even as young as Olivia is and not really interacting, I think she understood what this unconditional love is. You look at your child and your spouse and you go, wow. Not that this child can do no wrong. Not that my spouse could do no wrong. But I love them. I love them like I never knew I could love and that's how God loves us. And I've been often warned about teaching the concept of God the Father, and this is for two reasons. One is there's a movement in society towards acceptance and inclusion, right? And so one seminary class in particular, I was expressly told to use inclusive language at the expense of class credit or grade points, which I did accept the punishment for. This extends beyond using terms like mankind, which I can understand. In fact, the uh, New International Version is one translation of the Bible that, that uses, you know, humanity in versus um, mankind, or we'll say brothers and sisters instead of man. Um, and, and so there is some of that that goes on. But, but we're not supposed to use terms like God the Father or Jesus the Son. And that troubles me because 
I cherish that description of God the Father. And when I quote scripture and I say he, I don't mean it disrespectful for women. I love women. You are amazing. And you keep us guys grounded (laughs) in a good way. Not grounding, but grounded. But so, you know, there's even alternate versions of the Lord's Prayer. Not God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's creator, redeemer, and sustainer. And, And okay, I understand we don't want to offend, but... But at the same time, I love that image of God the Father and that intimate relationship of father and son and how we are his adopted children. But secondly, I was warned that referring to God as father could be considered even abusive to someone who did not have a good relationship or experience with their own earthly parent. And I'm sorry, I know that is a reality. And I am sorry that, that not everybody gets to experience that. That is not God's plan for parents. And if that is you, I want to speak to you because God has clear desires and designs for his relationship with you. Throughout the Bible, there are descriptions and guidance on what relationships of all kind looks like, and they're all positive. They're all about loving and getting along and cherishing and respecting, not just our spouse, not just our parents or our children, but everyone, everyone. And traditionally, look at God's plans for fathers and God's plan for mothers on on their respective holidays. But I want to be careful not to dumb down our definition of good or father, right? Because the expectation is that we are good fathers, that we, if we don't have a good father, that we will be good fatherly people to others. If we are blessed to have our own children, then we will be a father or mother-like person to them. So I don't want to take the word mother or father out of our language because someone didn't get it right. That's letting us off the hook. I'm going to share with you a very bad example. I like fruitcake. I'm one of the few probably that do. Do you like fruitcake? Thank you. It's a Northern thing, I think though, because I think, you know, actually we talked about this. I love fruitcake. So when everybody else passes it around as a gag gift, I'll snag it. I like that stuff. I usually don't have to share it. I think fruitcake is good. But because people don't think that, they're not telling me not to use the word good because fruitcake has ruined goodness for them. God didn't ruin father. God did not ruin father. He exemplifies father. I'll come back off that topic, but I do want to respect those who don't understand that kind of relationship, but do understand that God wants that relationship and hoped for it for you and your parents and your children as well. So let's not let ourselves off the hook. But these periods of, of lamentation, of, of affliction, they're temporary, right? That's a, that's a promise. Even Jesus experienced these periods, right? He was in the garden and, and he knew everything had been put on him and he knew what was about to happen. And what does he say? Take this from me, right? We don't want to go through this stuff. Even Jesus himself said, take this from me. But then he does the right thing and he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Not mine, but yours. That's, that's trust. That's hope. That's faith. He was betrayed by a trusted friend. And I don't just mean Judas. Remember, Peter denied him three times. He was chastised and ridiculed long before the punishment of the crucifixion. All right? He was chased out of cities, his own hometown. He lost friends to illness and death. I mean, Scripture tells us that Jesus wept at the passing of Lazarus. Not much is recorded about the period of time between Jesus' birth and when he began his ministry. But, you know, we trust that, 
that being both fully divine and fully human, you can probably assume he experienced all the joys and sorrows of the world as a child and a young man at that time. His dad was a carpenter. He probably cut himself. He probably scraped his knee. He probably got hurt. He probably got sick. That's the way of the world. But listen to the words of Hebrew 12 too. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, this is the Apostle Paul writing. He's referring to Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of faith. He says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He said, Father, take this from me. But he knew that it was the Father's will that needed to be done. And so again, for the joy set before him, he endured this. You know, one of the most important purposes of the book of Lamentations was to explain some of the theological reason for the catastrophe that had fallen on the people. You know, the book places the reason for Jerusalem's fall in clear focus and demonstrates that can be learned from God from this. It says, the reason given for Jerusalem's demise is the sin of the people. The fall of the city is a vivid illustration of God's justice. Now, that doesn't mean punishment. That's consequence. That's justice. And not overlooking sin, even though those who are the ones being punished are his own. It demonstrates the fact that God may seem like an enemy to his people when they are disobedient. It shows that the catastrophe was not outside the purposes of God. You ever thought about that, that some of the stuff we're going through is part of God's grand plan and purpose? Even if, he, even if we are the ones that set in the motion the, the bad stuff that's happening, he uses it for his good purpose in our life. That's a promise. And the book vividly describes the results that can come from willful disobedience. But God is envisioned as a God of mercy and fullness and faithfulness as well. Even though Jeremiah saw his beloved homeland crumbling about him as he's writing these, these, these poems of, of just pain, there remained one great element of stability throughout all this. God's loyalty to his promises. Jeremiah knew that this was not the end for the trust he trusted in the steadfast love of God, the steadfast love that God had promised and learned to wait quietly for God to act in his time, which is the verse we've read several times this morning. So to bring this back in the context of Jesus Christ, John 15, 11, it's Jesus' own words. He says, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. The joy of Advent season isn't about happiness. Christmas is happy, yes. But the joy that Advent is speaking of isn't happiness. Happiness is enjoyable, certainly, but it is the joy of our salvation, the joy of hope founded in God's loving promises that we recognize and that we celebrate. And I've told you this before, I don't care for the term Advent season because it implies a finality to it, right? Or some, some starts and ends. There's a start to the season, there's an end to the season. If we're compelled to consider hope, love, joy, and peace to be in season, if we're going to use that term in season, then we must accurately put it in this picture. We need to consider the season was set up through the promises of God throughout the First Testament, even during the seasons of lament, lament, lamentation and affliction. But it was embodied with the birth of Jesus Christ 
and it continues today. We are in the season. We are in the season. And after seeing what happened, the birth of the Savior, the shepherds, they ran back excitedly, right? And we sang about their joy earlier in the service. That's the same joy that we should be feeling today. That is the same joy we should be feeling because after seeing what happened, the birth of the Savior, they ran back and they told everyone about what they had seen and what they had heard. So I want to challenge us to do that as well. What are you doing with this true joy you have? Are you running back excitedly out to the rest of the world and saying, oh my gosh, the Savior has come. He has rescued us all. Despite the, the darkness we thought we were in, the 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 pandemic, the, the divisiveness in the nation, this, this social unrest, everything that we might be feeling right now, financial insecurity with the, the economy doing whatever it's going to be doing. But do you have joy knowing God is in control and he's going to use this? That's the joy that's made complete in us. Let's make that our prayer. Father God, creator of heaven and earth, there is a whole story to be told, a story written long, long ago that set the stage that, that described your very nature of loving and just and merciful. Lord, it is not out of anger or frustration or, or anything that you choose to allow affliction on us. Lord, there are lessons to be learned. Some are easy lessons, some are hard lessons, some are painful and some are, some are joyful. Lord, all we can pray for is for us to learn that lesson well and to apply it in our lives. The story of the Savior being born at Christmas, that's a f story full of hope and love and joy and peace that we claim this Advent season. But again, this isn't a season that's about to end. It's a season that began that we are in the midst of now. And we look forward to the fulfillment as Jesus returns, as we are called forward to be with you, with you in heaven, which is where we desire to be. So God, Heavenly Father, we just rely on your love and compassion as we plow through this world, doing the best we can. We thank you for the, the hope of your Savior, Son, the, the help we receive through the Holy Spirit. And we sincerely apologize for when we fall short of the covenant promise we make to love you right back. Lord, we thank you for your grace and mercy. We even thank you for the consequences we must feel from time to time, all designed to bring us closer to you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.